and welcome to Chapter Tactics. This is the 40k podcast that focuses on playing Warmer 40k competitively at all levels of the game. I am your host, Mr. Petey Pob, and with me I have my two regular co-hosts, Sean Morgan from In the Finest Hour. This is Guy. And Brandon, ITC champion Grant. Yeah, it's good to be back, Pablo. You know, I've actually been wondering about that, Brandon. Do you think it, it should be like the presidency where if you, you've won the ITC championship, you're always an ITC champion? So we just refer to you as the ITC champion, Brandon Grant? Or do you think it should be like a, a world heavyweight contender or like a, a boxing title where it's just like you're the champ until you're not the champ and then you're no longer the champ? Uh, so you know. refer to presidents that are no longer in office as former president. That works for me. Uh, former ITC champ Brandon Grant decided by him first. That is the title I'm going to give him until he wins it again, which um, maybe one day he will. Who knows? Anyways, today's episode is going to be a very interesting episode. There were originally two plans for a topic for this episode. I was excited about both of them. I picked one topic, and then that topic I was going to do research on, because I do actually do some research in these episodes, uh, was kind of taken over by some LVO slash industry news that that is actually really fascinating. It's been kind of dominating, you know, the last few hours of my day. Um, So I wanted to talk about that first, too. So that's what we're going to talk about at the top of the episode. It's it's really interesting. It has nothing to do with Warmer 40K, but it has everything to do with what how a company interacts with a gaming community and how important it is for a company to take the time to be transparent um, and to make decisions around their games, right? And their IPs. So it's good stuff. Uh, and for those of you listening, it's probably will have blown up even more now because you're listening on Tuesday. So that is what we're going to talk about. Uh, and then before that, I want to make a quick announcement I know last week we had some audio issues with the podcast. Uh, that was 100% my bad. That was not the editor pandas, or it was not the sound editor's fault. It was all my fault. Uh, sometimes when you're editing an audio, if you, especially if you have any audio editing experience, you'll know this. When, you, when you're editing audio, sometimes it's just very hard to take stuff out if the original copy is not good, right? And so it's... Uh, so it can be something to be very difficult. So we do the best we can. Panda does the best she can in when editing the episodes. Uh, however, that one was 100% my bad. There was like clicking. There was some um, audio issues where it was not quite not quite loud enough. Um, so this episode's hopefully going to be a lot better. I moved my studio around. You will hear a little bit more of an echo in the background, which we should be able to get rid of. Uh, but I eliminated the background noise and some of the other stuff, the clicking and stuff that should prevent that in the future. And then I'm going to work on another thing in the future where basically I I fix the office up to make it look like a real studio. So there won't be any echo. Uh, it should sound a lot nicer. Um, and I've even got a new mic that hopefully I can get adjusted and mounted. Uh, so we have good to go. So that's it. Sorry about that. Uh, also, if you want to sign up for Patreon, we had a good time last week playing some games. We didn't play that long, but uh, I'm starting to enjoy streaming a lot, and that's kind of part of the reason why I also want to kind of revamp the office uh, and make it more streaming-friendly, because streaming games is actually really fun, and I'm starting to pick it up a little bit more. I think the next game I stream is going to be this Wednesday. I'm going to try and stream Phasmophobia. Are either of you two familiar with this game? Phasmophobia. 
Never heard Passingly, of it. yeah. It, it is a new game. It has over 80,000 reviews on Steam and a 97% five-star 10 out of 10 rating, mm-hmm. That's, which is um really good. It's a really well-rated game. Uh, and it, it's it's basically it's a game where you, you're ghost hunters and you go into a haunting, a location, and you find a ghost. Um, and what makes it really cool is there's in-game voice chat, and the ghost is actually a comp- one of 12 complicated programmed AIs that responds to your voice and voice commands as you're talking to your your crew, right? And then, you know, the ghost, like, the, every ghost has a different personality, so you kind of have to, like, find evidence. You're not there to capture the ghost. You're there just to find evidence on the ghost and hopefully it doesn't kill you. Um, it's I've seen a couple videos of it. It's really creepy looking. It, it looks awesome. So I'm going to try and stream that this Wednesday. If you're interested in that, all you have to do is sign up for one month of Patreon for Patreon Chapter Tactics. And uh, you get access to the Facebook group where you can watch us stream it live. Uh, if not, we stream Among Us. We've streamed other games. Might talk some 40k. All that good stuff. And then finally, while you're there, if you sign up this month for Patreon, we're going to be giving away one FLG Hobby Box. So if you watch Signals from the Frontline, you don't know what the hobby box is. It is essentially a convention uh, swag bag in a box. It's uh, the VIP. It's better than the VIP bag if you ever bought that at the High Roller Package at the LVO. It's a lot better than that. It's like several few hundred dollars worth of product all in one big box. I can't tell you what's in it specifically because my boss has told me not to. But there's some ITC FLG products in there that... I thought were super cool that I begged Reese and Frankie to let me have. And they were like, no, these are for the, the, the boxes, the hobby boxes. <laughs> um, so I can't tell you what they are, but they're product that we we've never put out before. So it's brand new. Um, you'll be the first ones to get it. I don't even know if we're going to start selling them. It just, you know, it depends on, on a bunch of different things, but we managed to produce them for this hobby box. So it's like some exclusive FLG content on top of, you know, stuff from, you know, tons of other miniatures and uh, miniature games and companies as well. So it's a great deal. It's normally $150, normally $300 value, and you can win it for free for just $5 a month by heading over to patreon.com slash chapter tactics. So check that out. Also buy stuff from frontlinegaming.org. They sponsor every episode on the Frontline Gaming Network. And let's move on. So Sean and Brandon, are either of you familiar with fantasy flight games? Yeah, I think yeah, I've heard of, them. heard of them. Yeah, yeah. They produced a little little miniatures game called Star Wars X-Wing. Uh, Star Wars Armada. They basically have the Star Wars miniatures IP. Star Wars Legion, Star Wars Armada, Star Wars X-Wing. Uh, rest in peace, Star Wars Imperial Assault. So today, uh, Monday the 16th, Asmodai, who owns Fantasy Flight Games, uh, released a press release saying that they were going to move all of their Star Wars miniatures games to under new under under new ownership or new um, excuse me new management to another game company that they own called Atomic Mass Games. Now Atomic Atomic Mass Games they're the guys who created Marvel Crisis Protocol, which is which is a pretty popular game. Uh, I haven't heard anything bad about it really. It, it, it doesn't appeal to me um, because I'm not a big fan of of Marvel miniatures games um, or like Hero Clicks and so it just doesn't appeal to me. But it's not bad. It's not a you know it's not a terrible game or anything. But why I wanted to bring this up is because the Asmodee doing this is essentially like Disney telling Pixar like, "Hey, bros, 
you you know your movies we're going to give it all to the marvel cinematic cinematic universe studio guys like the mcu they're going to take all your pixar movies from now on don't worry about it you can work on your shorts i you know i promise it'll be good you can work on your shorts you'll make the best pixar shorts ever and the mcu is going to take over your movies um i feel like that's kind of what asmodei did to fantasy flight games yeah it's and and um, so I'm looking at the press release now. It's essentially they're um, moving uh, special. They're moving uh, all development for future miniatures games by Asmodee are going to be taken over by Atomic Mass Games. Uh, all the oversight and for those games and uh, everything that has to do with I, and I imagine oversight is is defined. Actually, we'll talk about that in a little bit. But oversight is specifically defined as a specific stuff that FFG does. Um, that all got moved over to Atomic Mass Games. Uh, the miniatures titles, um, strategic reallocation, strategic reorganization of the assets are all taken over by Atomic Mass Games. So basically, Atomic Mass Games, they're they're running Star Wars X-Wing now, right? They're running Legion. They're running Armada. And Star Wars X-Wing, I think, is the most important one there because Star Wars X-Wing was, for years, the second or third biggest miniatures game in the world behind Warhammer 40k. I guess miniature war game. Miniatures game? I don't know. I, I, miniature war game, I think, is the, war game, the, probably. The, the common term. Yeah, either way, the Star Wars X-Wing was massive. Uh, and it still is mm-hmm. big. It's not as big as Warhammer 40k, but it's still huge. And so, as I started digging into this, I started getting phone calls from uh, people in that community uh, who, were, who were worried about like the L- what this means for the LVO, for Grand Championships at the Las Vegas Open, et cetera, et cetera. Now, I can't, I can't tell you anything yet because there is nothing official yet. This all happened literally within 24 hours of you listening to this podcast, if you're listening to it on release date on Tuesday the 17th. But the rumor is, is that they've essentially released a ton of staff because FFG's whole idea with their organized play was... A community-focused, you know, um, a grand tournament scene, right? Or that—that that was their—that was their organized play. Their ITC was FFG controlling, or not controlling, sponsoring local TOs and event organizers to run their grand tournaments for them, right? And it was actually a model that I kind of looked at when we talked about ITC and tournament theory and how we should go about, you know, t- handling our own organized play. And so because of that intimate relationship between the employees of Fantasy Flight Games and the the community, uh, we've kind of heard that people have been getting fired from FFG, people organized play people who worked for FFG, who ran that event, um, not, not just organized play people. And this is all rumors, by the way. Nothing, none of this is set in stone yet. There's been no official announcements. I don't actually know who has and hasn't been fired at all, but it, it's just a lot of because all this happened at once, a lot of uh, talking and messages and stuff all kind of shot out at me rapid fire like shotguns. Like, boom, 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 boom. Did you hear X got fired? Like, what's going on? Like, oh my god. Um, this is really fascinating uh, because Asmodee is obviously, they're a big boy company. They're, you know, they're, they're a top toys, toy producing company, you know, period. They're huge. They're massive. Um, they've obviously got a bigger picture in mind. Uh, we see this a lot with Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast and Magic the Gathering and D&D. A lot of decisions Hasbro makes are big picture company decisions that have small effects on the community in Magic the Gathering. And this is the same thing with, with this exact thing. 
I'm not. I don't know how good Atomic Mass Games is. I know a lot of Privateer Press guys uh, who left Privateer Press and started Atomic Mass Games. I know that's kind of like their base, um, and obviously they know what they're doing with the Marvel Crisis Protocol. But from what from the digging I did, it looks like Marvel Crisis Crisis Protocol is. It looks like they don't have like an established organized play something as sophisticated as what ffg had with like a grand tournament scene with a world championship uh and and something like a a real circuit right um so i don't know i I, it's kind of interesting that happened you know um specifically specifically right now with events not going on uh and i just thought i'd share that news with you guys yeah that's it it's 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 an interesting change in uh how they're handling things obviously uh obviously i'm sure the company has reasons for why they're making those decisions but from the the player experience end of things it's going to be interesting to see how that actually pans out now here gw did something that was kind of similar but it actually benefited the community and that's with the forge world rules right so they essentially they had this sister company in forge world uh, who's making their own rules and their own miniatures and, and their own game even. Um, and we're seeing it now. GW is just like, ah, you know what? You guys uh, you guys can make Horus Heresy. We're going to take away, um, you know, 40k from you. We're going to start, that's going to go under the 40k umbrella, as it should. Um, and obviously, we don't know if people got fired or not. I imagine if there was, a, I, I'm going to be honest, from what I've seen from Forge World's rules writing, I don't know how big their rules writing team was but if there was a large rules writing team i i don't know if gw would have kept them or not uh, the point is is that we don't know who got fired in the background when forge world got or who got side promoted or whatever when forge world started losing uh their rules writing team or their their, their rules and development team uh and gw took that over for forge world models i don't i don't know what happened there but from the outside looking in it looks like GW did something similar with Forge World, and it was actually to our benefit as a community. Yeah, it's hard to speculate a lot on what occurred there. Um, I've heard a few stories about things, um, but I can't imagine that Forge World's rules writing team is particularly large. Um, They just, they don't put out enough content to necessitate like a six-person rules team. There's they maybe that. had one and or two guys. Their focus is not the same as Games Workshop. It's much more on the models and the lore than it is on the rules. Well, if you yeah, believe absolutely. Games Workshop, that was also their focus for the past 20 <laughs> years. But, uh, you know. Yeah, the, the Warhammer community team really took a step up. Um, and it, it's I always I see stuff like this that's kind of in our industry. And it always fascinates me because no matter what happens, it does have a ripple effect in the community because it's so small things that happen mm. in the star wars x-wing community affect 40k even if it's just a small minuscule amount it does uh same thing with with 40k affecting them when eighth edition came out it definitely affected privateer presses and fantasy flight games as bottom lines with their miniatures games it absolutely did we saw it uh and it's just it's interesting so I don't know what I don't know what the future holds for Atomic Mass Games and Star Wars X-Wing and Star Wars Miniatures games, um, but it's it's very interesting. And if I will say right now, if there's like a stumble, Atomic Mass Games puts out something where uh, the X-Wing community isn't 
scratching that competitive itch. And then Warhammer 40k really takes like a step up and really ups their competitive scene. And maybe they've already started doing like player profiles and cool stuff, right? So if 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 40k if the 40k team gets their act together and really gets behind true like 40k organized play and uh, and really doubles down with with whatever, right? I'm not I'm not I'm not trying to like say like I know what the future is going to hold, but yeah, I'd say this is an opportunity for GW to capitalize on uh you know a company misstepping so good interesting stuff hmm? all right okay main topic sorry for that sorry for that side sideways talk i really had to talk about it it's it's been um on my mind for a while what do you guys think and gals in the comments below do you think uh it, it'll affect i probably won't affect 40k in the short term um but do you think there's any long-term effect there uh also for you star wars x-wing star wars legion star wars armada players i know a ton of you are 40k transplants as well, uh, or your your uh, your saints, and you play both games. Um, but what do you what do you think? What what's what do you think's going on with that? Would you do you have faith in Atomic Mass games? Also, I'd like to hear from Crisis Protocol players as well too. Uh, you know, I just I'm not as familiar with Atomic Mass games and Crisis Protocol. So if maybe I was wrong, like maybe maybe they are in good hands. Um, I don't know. It's just it's a very big deal um, because I feel like the miniatures community is losing a giant in fantasy flight games organized play. Um, so anyways, let me know what you all think in those comments. Uh, also, if you don't like these kind of tangents where I talk about random topical things um, in the industry, let me know. I'll stop them. Don't worry about it. Uh, I just, you know, kind of wanted to lead with this one because it it's so fresh in my mind. All right. Speaking of being fresh in your mind, let's talk about the main topic now. Let's momentum, focus, the hot hand, all of that good stuff, you see it in your 40k games, right? When your opponent rolls five ones in a row and their, you know, their Gilliman dies and he fails the three up with the re-roll, not in 9th edition, but in 8th edition, uh, you, you know, and you start to see the light of day. Maybe uh, Don't Stop Believing starts seeping through the walls and the vents of the tournament hall that you're playing at. And you start to think about, you know, maybe it can win this game. You start to think about moves that weren't there before. You know, and, and um, uh, you've got a little more pep in your step. And so that's what I want to talk about specifically, is that that mentality shift, the the momentum changing and the waves and the ebbs and flows of of the dispositions and the players when they play a game of Warmer 40k, because it is a very swingy game. I've had more dicey games of Warmer 40k than I've had in a, any other game I've played that, that is random focused, right? Um, Warmer 40k is very much an ebb and flow dicey game. Uh, as much as pro players like to take the dice off the table, uh, you know, the dice out of the equation, there are moments when even the best players know that they, they've lost momentum because of a bad roll, right? And that could be something as simple as an explodes result doing one mortal wound to something. Uh, but 40k is a game of inches uh, and, and sometimes even centimeters. And when that happens, you know, even the smallest things can have an effect on your overall game plan. So I want to talk about that. So Sean and Brandon, first and foremost, before we go into everything with like the hot hands fallacy and kind of like the psychological um, ramifications of swinging, how do you two handle uh, swings in games and momentum in games? Is it something that you cognitively think about and focus on? Uh, in the game, or do you just kind of uh, push that off to the side and focus on the game and try to keep it out as, of the game as much as possible? So I can start us off here. 
So I tend to think of things the way I think of my work, which is start with the goal in mind. So when we're talking about hot hands and uh, momentum, what we want is to have the right mindset that'll get us across the finish line and help us overcome any obstacle, get that eye of the tiger music basically playing the whole time we're playing. That's what we want. So the question we should be asking is, how do we get to that mindset? How do we stay in it? And how do we avoid the opposite, which is getting distracted or uh, the fallacy of, oh no, I'm doing so well, I must be due for something terrible to happen. Which I think is what you were talking about, Pablo, in terms of the fallacy of, shoot, I'm on a hot streak, that means that I'm due for something to go wrong. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, so so uh, that's kind of right. The hot hands fallacy is very specifically a fallacy put out in sports um, that a data analyst, analyst wrote out like I don't know, like ten years ago. It was a while ago. I can pull up. I have all that stuff right now, right now. But but yes, essentially the fallacy is the um, we put too much um, weight on random results and use that as a reason for why momentum has shifted in your favor. Right. So like um, the way I guess we might as well talk about the Heinz fallacy, uh, the way I've kind of understood it is when a player, when a coach goes with the player who has the hot hand. Right. So in basketball, if you notice a player is hitting threes and they're just they're landing every shot and they're they're hot and you're clearly they've got momentum on their side. Um, they've got some sort of psychological competitive edge over their opponents. Uh, the coach starts to go to that player. The, the plans, the game plan is give that guy the ball. He has the hot hand. So the hot hand fallacy is essentially we as humans perceive patterns and random results to basically to make sense of randomness, right? And so if you're the most common example in 40k of this is when you start to when your opponent starts to roll really well and you start to roll really poorly, right? So the hot hands fallacy says your opponent's getting hot at the right time, so you're starting to feel bad. You're attributing that to to actual loss instead of pure raw stats and so that's affecting you negatively or affecting your opponent positively so your opponent might think i'm winning it's it's it happens the most in gambling uh when gamblers you know this is kind of the reason the hot end fallacy is kind of the reason why las vegas stays in business it's because people see the patterns in their behavior uh, and so even even though the the, the win loss ratio is like fifty one fifty percent you know a little low it's it's not usually in the player's favor but it's just high enough for the player to develop a streak or a pattern so they start to attribute things like when I when I hold my lucky rabbit's foot I start to win more or they start to say like I'm winning more you know I must be lucky or um, I might be doing something right because my dealer sucks yeah, or extremely whatever. common especially in competitive sports. Oh yeah, it's it's a hundred percent common. So that's that's the fallacy specifically is the the disillusioned idea that that randomness is actually skill or randomness is is um, something that you can control instead of raw stats. So back to you, Brandon. Sorry. So to segue from that, I think it's important if you want to avoid that fallacy to realize that the opposite is true that you literally cannot control your luck at all. The only thing you can control is your practice and your uh, approach to whatever the situation is. So in a game, especially one like 40K that relies on dice, there's going to be games where you have that 1 in 10,000 luck event occur. And because of the number of dice you're rolling, 
generally every game you're going to have um, an event that really should not have happened ever happen. You're not going to be able to figure out which event that is. But yeah, random things are going to happen and sometimes they're going to be really good for you and sometimes they're going to be really bad. But it is important to recognize that no matter how the game is going in the current moment, you don't know what's going to happen for luck in the future. Mm -hmm. So even if you've just rolled four ones in a row, that doesn't mean that the fifth die you're going to roll is any different. So the way I tend to approach things with, to, to get to that goal of keeping the eye of the tiger playing in your head, no matter what's happening on the table, is practicing to a level where you're disconnected from what's happening on the table from a luck perspective in the sense that you have accepted that the dice are out of your control. You have accepted that every one of your beloved toy soldiers who you've spent hours painting and building and creating backstories for, I don't know how deep you get into this hobby, but whatever effort you've put into building this army and getting to this table, or maybe it's the final event of the tournament, you're letting all of that go. Everything that is not directly under your control, you're letting go. And that is how you can maintain focus on what is really important while you're at that table, which is what you can still control, which is I can move my models around. I can choose attacks for them. I can focus on the strategy that I'm playing that'll give me the most chance of success. And if you let all of that other stuff go, like, oh no, I'm on a streak, or, um, oh shoot, the luck in this game is terrible, this isn't fair, you won't invest any emotional or mental energy into those things that you can't control, which is if the dice are favoring you or not, for example. Mm -hmm. I think especially dissociating yourself from the dice rolls that have already happened, the ones that are no longer relevant because they're in the past and they're literally impossible to affect in any way, um, it can be very beneficial because... Like, yeah, we see these patterns of like, oh, I have good luck this game, uh, or I have bad luck this game. And, you know, not only can you not affect that, but that's probably not true. That's just your perception of it. So the more you can step away from uh, allowing that perception of your luck to affect how you play the game, the better off you are going to be. Yeah, so accepting that that beautifully painted model that you've put on the table is already dead. Um, it's really important. So when that model does go away, you can just keep playing and move on. And I know that sounds kind of weird and cruel. Like, come on, man, I painted this Marine model. I want him to do heroic things. He wasn't supposed to die to a grot pistol. Well, yeah, sometimes that's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah. A hundred percent. I think disassociating, disassociating yourself from luck is probably the first step. Um, yeah. Uh, what I want to talk about also is because I don't think you can argue that momentum and random events in games have a psychological effect on both players. Uh, whether, you know, how big that is, you could probably argue that to death. Uh, you know, I personally, anecdotally, know that, you know, I've, I've had games where something bad has happened and I've just felt like I've just felt deflated. And I knew I made bad decisions 
because I felt like I was losing that game. And then when I went back to look at that game, I realized I probably could have won that game if I had done X, X, and X and tried to shoot for a roll, right? So I want to talk about uh, playing the field and kind of playing the randomness. So once you've disassociated yourself emotionally, I think that's the perfect time to go in there and start to look at specific events and analyze them, uh, random events and panders, and actually think about them and use them to your advantage, right? So one one example I have is uh, the idea of um, people have people tend to look at st- statistics wrong, right? Um, for instance, uh, you know what? Actually, this is a this is actually Sean. Sean, I think something you're probably better equipped to because I've heard you talk about this before. That's the idea uh, in statistics of independent statistics, where every single d6 is always going to be a d6, and then random or patterns and variables, right? So when mm. you're flipping a coin, for instance, if you flip a hundred coins, you and then you mark every single one, right? It should be theoretically every flip should be 50-50. And that should statistically come out to be 50-50 heads, 50-50 tails. However, if you were to progress them um and mark them down and look at all of the ones where it came up heads four times in a row. So let's say the roll 30 flip 39 40 41 and 42 all came up heads right when you go to flip 43 are you going to pick heads or are you going to pick tails like what are the chances of there being five heads in a row right oh i think that's the key is people see like oh there's four heads in a row the chances of there being five heads in a row are so small that it feels like it it should be tails now, right? Because you know tails is due. We've had we've had all these heads, and that's super unlikely. So it's got to be tails. Um, but that's the sort of like what I was talking about with like setting the things that have already happened in the past. You can't look at those last four heads and see them as like, oh, and this means it's likely to be tails now, uh, because those don't affect anything that you're doing in the future um you know it's not like a hit roll into a wound roll where like if you miss you don't get to make the wound roll um there there is no connection between the the coin flips at all so you you have to be able to set those behind you and say i'm just dealing with what i have now rather than the stuff that is you know not only out of my control but also no longer affects anything Right. Now, I'm, I'm glad you said that, because that, that is, I think, intuitively and logically the correct choice. However, the specific, the specific uh, research I'm looking at is from um, guys who, who uh, took, the, basically, they looked into all of this. They, they did a research with the Cornell study, the Cornell, Cornell basketball team, studied the hot hands, talked about that. Um, they did this quick little experiment with these coins and then challenged people to pick what the next what they showed them some of the basic patterns and then challenged them to pick what the next roll was for very specific numbers where the coin was already flipped but they didn't tell the person what that result was so they'd show them 39 through 42 those there were you know there were four heads there what do you think the fifth one is and the person you know would logically pick tails right to break the sequence because there can't be five heads in a row and they were actually correct more than 50% of the time they're correct like 62% of the time. So they're 
there and and that's not that's not perfect data either they they you know they didn't do that over millions of people over you know however i attribute this to a very specific thing in um 40k games i don't do it for every single die roll i don't count every single d6 that we all roll and say okay there haven't been a lot of fives and sixes so i'm gonna do this however i do it with psychic phases right every game i've played against eldar or Thousand Suns, or any any army list with a, a big psychic phase, where it's just a big deal, right? Because the psychic phase is essentially it comes down to forty to thirty percent chances consistently, right? You're always rolling like you're smiting on fives and sixes. You're smiting on slightly above average sixty percent odds of things happening or more, right? In general, right? Fives and sixes uh, and two dies is usually like you get like a 60 to 70% chance that it's going to happen. But every game, and you play Eldar, Sean, so I know you know this. Every game, there's always one awful Eldar psychic phase turn. No, ma- oh, yeah. no matter what. Whether it's turn one, turn five, doesn't matter. There's always one. And I always count on it. Every time I play a game, I'm like, okay, they had a really hot psychic phase. Like, I know that. I'm behind. Maybe this phase, maybe they're going to have a bad one. Sometimes it doesn't happen. I admit so, you know, there's been times when I've waited for Eldrad to, like, blow his head up um, because he's been at one wound for five turns, and it just didn't happen. That's understandable, but it does happen. It happens more consistently in my games than not. So I, when well, that does happen... Go ahead. I was going to say, that's that's just variance. Like, yes. You know, you, you what you're talking about is this chance of, like, basically, like, an, on any given psychic phase, there's, like, a 10% chance you just absolutely blow it and no don't get a critical spell uh that is that's sometimes a problem with psychic armies but that's a whole other discussion like um i don't know about your study pablo it sounds like it might not have enough uh data points to be realistic I'm actually looking up the. Uh, this is unfortunately. I normally do but a lot of research, like I said. Do know but, um, that as soon ahead. as you take human behavior into account, you do start seeing some alter alterations to the odds. So, mm-hmm. for example, if you look at streaks in free throws for basketball, mm-hmm. it's not a fair coin. So yeah, yeah sometimes. And free throws aren't a coin flip most of the time. If you're a pro basketball player, you make a free throw. But even if you're making 9 out of 10 free throws, it's kind of unusual if you start making 15, 20, 30 free throws in a row. That's really hard to do. And what the statistics show is that the more free throws a player has completed in a row, the less likely they are to make the next shot. And it's not because of pure luck. It's because once you start making that many shots, people start to notice which mm-hmm. breaks your focus, so you're less likely yeah. to be focused on the shot it's, that you're taking. It's a, a, a self-sabotaging behavior, essentially. Yes, so that sort of thing, you definitely don't want to psych yourself into, where you're like, oh no, I just rolled four sixes for the number of shots on my wyvern. Uh, I wonder what's going to break in my army. You can't think that way. You just have to remain focused on the stuff you can control and let go not disassociate, perhaps, but let go of what you can't control, which is what your dice are going to do. Another thing I wanted to bring up was this idea that um, you need to have that Eye of the Tiger music playing in your head. So what are the kinds of things that um, 
get you psyched up to be playing the game. And yeah, it can be really cool miniatures. It can be telling a story. Um, it can be amazing moments in the game where your squad performs some heroic action to save the day. That's all cool. But a lot of that stuff is random. Like, you're not always going to have your one squad perform heroic deeds during a game to get you psyched up so that you're really excited. Like, that's not going to happen every game. And you want to be a competitive player, you need to get in a mental state that supports you winning every game, preferably. Um, so that's the question I'd like to pose for Sean and Pablo is, what are the kinds of things that you guys use strategically to remain focused on the game, having a good time, in a good headspace, whatever you want to call it, so that your attitude supports you winning the game? You can go first, Sean. Um... Man, that's a big question. I think for me, it is kind of like taking that step back. Um, it, it may be different for other people, but I'm I'm not trying to get excited about what I'm doing. Um, I, I'm trying to find a way to take a step back from things so that I can analyze things from as objective a perspective as it's possible to do. Um, and, and sort of like rely on what I've learned rather than what I'm feeling at a given moment. Uh, because I think that's an easy mistake to make of like, well, I feel like I'm doing well, or I feel like I'm doing badly, uh, and allow that to control what you're doing as opposed to, you know, I know that I need to get onto the objectives because that's what I've learned about my army. So I... A lot of times in a, a game or especially a tournament situation, what I'm I'm looking to do is to to actually like try to maintain that relatively neutral disposition where uh, I I'm 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 not being controlled by how I perceive the game. Hello, listeners. Um, this is just an ad placement. Okay, Panda. This is where I want the ad. Okay, I want it to say Frontline Gaming. Presents the Frontline Gaming Network. Chapter Tactics. And then... Okay, and then I need you to get me the rights to Don't Stop Believing by Journey. Alright, doable. Okay, I love the enthusiasm. And then after that, I need you to put an advertisement right here. This episode is brought to you by HP Instant Ink. No one is reading your mind, but HP Instant Ink knows when your printer is running low and sends you new cartridges, so you never have to think about ink. Save up to 50%. You'll pay less than $5 a month for ink and never run out again. Find out if your printer is eligible and enroll today at hpinstantink.com. Conditions apply. For details, visit hp.com slash instantinkspotify. You know, it, I didn't really like it. Neither of them were very good. They weren't very professional. Yeah, needs improvement. Okay, Panda, this is what I need you to do. I need you to apply to both of those companies, join their advertising department, and then fix these ads. All right, let me just update my resume. Okay, while she's doing that, back to your regularly scheduled episode of Chapter Tactics. I'm, I'm kind of weird. Uh, I think I think that's for someone who, um, and I'm not saying this is you necessarily, Sean, uh, but mm. for someone who who can um, 
who who is maybe like emotionally they let they let their emotions affect their abilities to make the decisions in the game. Um, that's that's very very smart. That's a very good thing to do. Um, it's also it, staying focused in the game is probably uh, and and um basically what you do is probably i think the what the high-end top players do as well right um it just it makes the most sense it's just it's the cleanest path to victory um what i like to do to kind of keep my focus in the game and answer your question brandon is um i like to ride the like luck train the the roller coaster the momentum waves um and kind of uh, take risks that way, right? So to me, a game of 40k and a random game in general um, is all about risk management. If you if you want to make a high risk play, what are the chances of of that risk blowing up in your face, right? Uh, if it's like if it's like uh, if you have five of the same unit, you're able to make riskier plays with one of those units because you don't really care. Like the, the, the outcome, the negative outcome, if that unit dies and you put them in a bad spot is that that unit dies and you have four units to replace it. Um, this is why Lords of War and, um, Knights and, and big Death Star units, this is why they're usually inefficient. It's because you can't make risk risky plays with them. No, because a lot of units just delete whatever your unit happens to be Mm -hmm. if it's in the wrong place, even if it's a big model. Yeah, or 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 you know, even even simpler than that is, um, your your unit might not be in the most of you might not make the most efficient move for that unit for it to maximize the points you get out of that unit, and that could cost you the game, right? If you move your terminators too far into your deployment zone, or you know, overextend them, or underextend them, or or reserve them, hold them in reserve for too long, or whatever, right? Your big unit. Uh, you might not be able to maximize points. So you it might, in theory, look like that unit is just an absolute house for you and stomping your opponent. But in reality, you're not playing that unit as efficiently as possible because, and, and you just lose because you needed to play that unit perfectly because that because you had to, because that's what your army was designed to do. That's what that unit needed to do. Um, so the, the way I like to kind of play games is I like to manage resources use my units as resources and manage them and manage their risks so i i i know i play knights and i love playing knights because to me playing knights is like gambling in 40k like you just it's fast it's just like maybe your knight's not gonna die they have four up invulns so it's like sometimes you get hot sometimes you don't but i don't expect to win tournaments with my knights they're just cool they're just fun it's just gambling when i actually play games 40k and actually really want to do well i run msu and i i look at um very specific i i sign very specific roles to my little msu armies and then i give them those roles and i try to make sure to have units that that uh, i can that i have in case of of bad risk so basically i risk manage those units i say okay you guys you guys are here just in case my opponent's rolling hot like i've got extras uh and then i ride those waves um i look for i look for uh, when my opponent is rolling hot i start to play conservatively vice basically i i emotionally tie myself to the way the game is going the luck in the game is going and i play accordingly and i always try to do that and then i try that's how i have fun too so if you know an example is like if my marius calgar is just absolutely wrecking my opponent i'm gonna keep 
uh, I'm going to keep using him. He's going to be the focal point of my army. I'm going to I'm going to run him places he shouldn't go. He's going to charge knights. He's going to charge Mortarians or whatever because because he's just he's just my game plan. And my opponent is focusing on him too, uh, and that does happen. Um, your opponent, if you start going for a ride and you start giving us. Uh, attention to units your opponent is going to start focusing on those units and i've done that before where i've been like this is harley this is you know harley my captain he's killed a swarm lord and then harley the captain kills like my opponent's wave serpent on an objective even though he's just a captain my opponent's gonna be like hmm i should kill harley he's kind of a piece of shit oh man pablo you made me laugh out loud with the image of marnius calgar just like running forward with his power fist trying to slap things just ah. Any, anyway, so that that's how I that's how I stay focused on games. That's how I I I I have to do that. I I have to create narratives in my head based off of the the ebbs and flows of luck, um, or else I just if I if I devolve down to like pure stats and the perfect decisions, I just get bored. <laughs> I just I can't do it. I can't focus on it. I have a hard time focusing though. So well, that's great, Pablo. That's actually very educational. I think for a lot of people. I'll add to that. I think a fun way that I get my, myself psyched up is with music, actually. And there have been a few tournaments where I've had one particular song stuck in my head for most of the tournament. Pick the song wisely if you're going to do that. But um, yeah, if there's a particular band or album or song that really amps you up and gets you excited to play 40k, because it just fills your head with images of your toy soldiers doing amazing things then by all means, that can be super effective if it's not distracting you. At least for me, that's worked really well for any activity that you need to be focused on. So I do the same thing if I'm working. I'll do the same thing if I'm driving. I'll put on music that helps me do the activity. So sure, you can try and get a a song stuck in your head when you're playing a 40k event, as long as it doesn't actually interfere with you focusing on the the actual 40k. Because it's accomplishing just what Pablo was talking about, which is, I'm telling a story about what I'm doing that's really exciting and it's making me have a good time when I think about it. So I have actually a really cool story about that. So in Magic, if if you're familiar with Magic, I know there's one patron who will absolutely get this. Uh, There was a really good uh, Magic player called Brian Kibler. He's in the Magic Hall of Fame. He's a phenomenal Magic player. Uh, He's also a great game designer. He's overall, overall really successful, intelligent Magic player. One of my Magic heroes. Uh, Brian Kibler did an interview where he won, um, which Pro Tour? It was the Pro Tour he played John Finkel in. It's the Three Lightning, but if you're a Magic player, you know exactly which Pro Tour I'm talking about. But I think it was Pro Tour War- World Wake? I don't know. Anyways, the the point is, is that Brian Kibler, he won this Pro Tour. It was a big deal. It was like this huge event. Um, the the game he won against John Finkel was like insane. It, there was a lot of press. I think it was like Magic Pro Tour and Magic uh organized play like at its height um for that era right it was just so cool but he did an interview afterwards where he talked about or he listened to one mariah carey song the entire time going into the pro tour right so this is like one a day three of the pro tour so big night he he just qualified for day threes you know he's in the top eight and he listened to this one mariah carey song and i cannot for the life of me remember what it was i think it was like it was a weird, like, when you believe, or, like, it was, like, not, because I listened to it, and I was like, what did Brian Kibler listen to to win the whole thing? Like, I was fascinated. Um, it turned out to be just some random song, but I guess it meant something to him. Um, and ever since then, I've 
I've always been obsessed with trying to find out if athletes were listening to music and what songs they were listening to. Um, and I've had a few of them where I've been able to figure out what song the athlete was listening to. For the most part, though, I've, I've kind of just guessed that it's just random. It's just it, the song that you pick doesn't even have to be. It doesn't have to be Eye of the Tiger. I say Eye of the Tiger because you, the listener, it, it's easier for you, the listener, to understand because Eye of the Tiger conveys a very specific point it's you know it's focus it's eye of the tiger however you don't have to listen to eye of the tiger you can listen to any song that means something to you uh, as long as it keeps you focused right and so i do i'm I'm like you brandon i do try to pick a song in my head as i'm playing if i really want to do well at something um that's like my pd pob in the zone moment and also do that in the game too like i've done a, i've played a couple 40k games where where um i've listened to uh, like one one ear in my headset and I've just been listening to this songs playing specific a couple specific songs playing while I play the game um, and it's always helped me better to focus uh, although I don't win a lot so yeah there's that yeah but you're still in a good headspace while you're playing yes I think that's more important anyways um, as long as that headspace is helping you play your best it doesn't matter yeah. if you win or lose which is the last point I wanted to touch on which is a lot of the ideas you're thinking of, if you're thinking of it as a design problem, I want to have an attitude that helps me win games. But there's so much that's outside of my control, so I'm going to let go of that. But also, one of the things you can't control is whether you win or lose the game, right? Um, sometimes you're going to play someone who's better than you, I would hope. Otherwise, that would be pretty boring. And uh, they should beat you most of the time. Um, so getting in a headspace where you're expecting to lose your opponents outclassing you in every way being able to keep a good headspace at that time is also really important even if you do end up losing because um even if you lose if you played your best and then afterwards you had a good time and you learned something and now you're a better player because of that experience i call that a victory mm -hmm. so that helps me personally stay in a good headspace during games because even if someone's kicking my ass, um, I'm usually happy about it because I'm like, wow, this is really fun. You're making me really have to work hard if I want to win this game. This is great. And even if I lose, it's like, wow, really great job. And if you can, I know this sounds really cheesy, but if you can accept that sometimes you're going to lose and congratulate your opponent for playing really well and ask them afterwards, hey, did you notice anything I could have done differently and try and just focus on the getting better part, not the being better in that moment part. So you're accepting that there's a possibility that you can do better after the game. I think you're also going to have a really good time mm -hmm. because win or lose, you're going to focus mostly on the fight, not on the win. If that makes sense. No, that makes, that makes perfect sense. Um, Sean, is there any songs you listen to before 40k tournaments, like for the LVO or something? No, I, 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 I'm, I guess I'm different from the two of you in that I don't find that uh, a good way to focus. Yeah, it doesn't work you know, for it, everyone. It can be, it, it, it can be nice to relax to, but I don't find that that helps me focus any. Although I think that certainly is a component of things is like you you need to kind of distract yourself from overthinking things uh and for some people that may be very useful there 
but I don't like have a like a 40k soundtrack that I play before tournaments or anything. Do you have any other pre-tournament rituals or pre-game rituals that you do that that kind of get you in a a competitive mindset? I read too many army lists. Uh, I I go over army lists obsessively before a tournament uh, nice. to a point of like rereading the same list oh, that's half wonderful. a dozen times or more. Yeah. But mm. that gets you in the right headspace because your mind is just buzzing with 40k facts. Yeah. Uh, for me, at least, that that sort of just like constant rereading of people's lists and going through matchups and potential uh, missions and, and table setups and whatnot uh, is something that does help me focus. Uh, obviously, that's not true for everyone, but uh, personally, anyways, I find it very useful to sort of like get me into those correct thought patterns for like, here are the things I need to be considering. One thing I love doing, um, and on that, Sean, because I think that's that's great. I don't look at. I probably should look at more forty k lists. Um, I barely look at my opponent's list, um, <laughs> but one thing I do like to do uh, is when I get a list, is I like to play something I call forty k Sudoku, uh, and that's basically I pick the second when picking my secondaries. I start repeating the numbers in my head that each secondary can potentially give me. Right, so if like engage on all fronts, I can get twelve, or line breaker, I can get sixteen or twelve, um, and then you just repeat those numbers back and forth, uh, and then I use those as baseline numbers for what to shoot for when I play. Right, so if I know my if my forty k Sudoku tells me against this white scars list, I can score f uh, forty points in secondaries, so I can max two secondaries and then get ten points another. That's my goal. That's what I'm shooting for. Um, I don't do that with the primaries because it's a little harder. Uh, it takes a little more thought. Uh, I'll be honest, I can't. I usually can't think that far ahead. Like I think five turns ahead to kind of predict where your primary points are going to go. But if you can get like forty points in secondaries, um, and then do oh, you know, good in primaries, that's, that gives you a good shot at winning the game. Um, it might not win you the game, but it gives you a good shot. It gives you a baseline. So mm -hmm. I play my forty k Sudoku. That's. I think I don't think that's a bad way to to look at how to approach your your thing is like you kind of want goals that you're aiming for like i want to get x points out of this and y points out of that it also stops you from taking risky ones right so like in my 40k sudoku if i have an objective that's like like what's the one that you kill your opponent's warlord turn one that's like oh. the ultimate 40k sudoku no faux pas one yeah no, um, don't do that so like, yeah anyways it, it's never it's the right 40K. call <laughs> It's 40k Sudoku is like, if your opponent has an aggressive warlord, like a Magnus or Mortarian or so, something that's actually easily kill turn one, it's like a like a 15-0, right? Like, it, you can either score 15 or you can score zero, you know, maybe something smaller. But generally, it's super avoidable because it's 40k Sudoku is like 15 to like 12 to zero. Because so you're either going to kill it earlier or it's not worth it at the point at all, so... Anyways, just to stay away from that objective. Stay away from objectives that that are very swingy, that you that you have to like all or nothing. They're either fifteen or zero. They're not like a consistent ten. So yeah, I think that's actually like a general thing that this sort of like hot hand thinking can get you in mm -hmm. trouble with, um, either positively or negatively. If like if you see like oh I'm doing bad. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to be able to make this, or I'm doing so well, I should, I should gamble on the, the big win. Um, 
if if that gets you like a super low score on one of your secondaries, then that is going to just absolutely destroy your game plan. Uh, and you you really want to move away from that. Like it is almost always better just to accept that like nine or ten point secondary than to gamble on the thirteen or fifteen point. Yeah, and actually, I'm really glad you brought that up, Sean, because uh, that that reminds me of uh, units as well. People attribute hot hands to units too, right? So they 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 go mm. beyond just luck, uh, and they attribute it specifically to a game plan around a unit. Um, like the Castellan is a perfect example. I honestly think the the in the Castellan meta in seventh edition, the people who could look at their Castellan and not use it to not rely on it to kill everything were always outperforming the people who could because it was a common list. A ton of people had Castellan lists, mm-hmm. but a lot of times people would ride that Castellan hot hand because their Castellan killed three other of your opponent's Castellans in a row, even though they went second or something silly, right? And so they overlay on that Castellan, set themselves up for failure, and then someone like Brandon Grant comes in there with a dead Castellan turn one and beats them because Brandon Grant knew his Castellan <laughs> it doesn't always have the hot hand uh, and need you know used actual strategy to beat you. So that's oh, I placed a, a bet on that game and I lost round one. Yeah, you did. <laughs> I, thought my, I didn't. I didn't go second thinking the Castellan was going to die. Oh really? Oh wow. Well, yeah. He but, played uh, the hot hand did. and won. Brandon, you monster. That's that's the real, that's the true hot hand there. Well, that game was a great example of, uh, well, that didn't go as planned. And um, I actually, immediately after that happened, I was like, oh shit, have I just lost this game? What can I still do? And for a while, I felt really bad. Like, oh no, I've lost this game. What can I do? But what saved me in that moment was that attitude that said, even though I've lost, I shouldn't stop playing hard. I'll try and figure out a way out of this, even if I can't see where I should go from here. And I'll make some short-term decisions just to keep models on the table so that I can figure this out. And eventually, it did end up working out. Um, the Some catastrophic luck went the other way in that game, and I was able to capitalize on that. But that was it when you're when you're at the bottom of turn one and your opponent or at the top of turn one your opponent's like okay your turn and your big shiny important model is already gone and your game plan that you had is totally gone what are you supposed to do and that's where you can have i guess a cold hand situation where you're just devastated and you don't want to continue anymore because the game's over how i can't win where was the momentum shift that game, you think, Brandon? Because I remember that specifically. This is one of those cool 40k games where you could... It's on YouTube. Oh, you yeah. can still watch it. Oh, yeah. But I was in the audience in that game. And you could see the momentum shifts and how the audience reacted to it. And it emulated like the game. It, it was it was nuts. Like when you when your Castellan died, everyone was like... <gasps> and then, you know, 30 minutes later, people were on their phones... You know, not really paying attention to the game, talking, leaving, you know, three, well, two hours later. is uh, possibly um, Reese's favorite moment of 40K was the Hellhound. That was what turned the game. Um, it changed the momentum. So the momentum was Brandon's trying to keep models on the board. And then after this moment, it was uh, Brandon's winning and his opponent needs to do something to stay in this game. And the moment was... Um, I had a hellhound survive with one wound 
and uh, it moved towards the enemy at four inches, completed a charge with a 10-inch move, uh, consolidated, piled in, and touched or engaged about five enemy units. And when those units swung, they removed the last wound from the Hellhound. So I rolled to see if it exploded, and it didn't. And then CP re-rolled it, and it did explode. And it was an Artemia pattern Hellhound, so it did D6 mortal wounds to just about every unit in my opponent's army. Yeah, that's that's pretty massive. That's also pretty lucky, but, you know, that that's okay. Um, but that's that's what I'm saying. Like, even if you can't see how you're supposed to win, just sometimes the luck will turn around. Sometimes it won't. Uh, it's completely out of, outside of your control. And... Um, you just if you're going to win those high level games a little bit more often it does help to not lose hope even when there is no hope so even if every supercomputer could calculate all the odds and would say yeah you're 99% going to lose this game you should just concede you can say i'm not playing to win i'm just playing to see how far i can get yeah all right uh there's there's more in this topic but we're running out of time um I want to, I guess we're going to save this for a future episode, but I'd like to hear what you all think about this. Um, we, what are some examples of momentum in a game of 40k where you had all the momentum or you didn't have all the momentum and your opponent did, and then there was a huge momentum shift? How did that affect you psychologically? Do you think it affected your decisions? Or or did you think that it was just a thing that happened in the game and you ultimately weren't going to decide that outcome one way or another? Uh, I'm curious to hear what you, all of your thoughts are with that. Um I love this kind of topic. Uh, th- there's actually more ways to branch out into this topic and talk about things. Uh, one thing I'm definitely going to have to bring up is the idea of making the right play, um, which is essentially uh, it, it. You there's the right play and the wrong play when you're making units. Uh, for instance, um, shooting the correct target with a specific gun every time or always you know moving your nurglings on a backfield objective just common low risk this is the right play um but also when to choose risky plays things like that risk management making the right play versus the wrong play that's a really great subtopic that we could get into in a future episode um on top of a variety of other things so it's a great great topic uh yeah let us know in the comments below uh sean and brandon are there any final thoughts on on this that you wanted to maybe add or talk about before we move on to the end of the show? No, nah, I mean there's it it's a really big topic. This is a huge part of being a competitive player and it's a huge part of what differentiates the top end of players from the sort of middle tier people. Um but it is a process. It's not something you can just do in one fell swoop. It's it's a mentality you have to cultivate, not you know, just something you turn on or off. Yeah. And I think, oh, go ahead, Brandon. That's exactly right. It's something you're going to get better at by practicing. And if you're focused on the getting better part, rather than the, I need to be good right now, that will definitely help because you can say, I might lose this game, but I'm still going to have a good time and I'm going to learn as much as I can. Absolutely. All right. Now, if you're interested in getting into this mentality shift, uh, or if you want to learn more about these topics, we actually talk about this and other topics on this show and the Frontline Gaming Network. Uh, Also, 
if you're interested in learning about Necrons, um, and not necessarily like uh, an amazing strategic breakdown by people who absolutely know the Necron Codex inside and out, but uh, people who know 40k inside and out uh, reading the Necron book, I would check out Sean, Shaylin, and Ben in the Finest Hour where they covered the Necron book, and they actually talk about this specific kind of stuff in an hour on a podcast. Well, thanks, Pablo. We appreciate the the little bit of plug there. I'm, I'm a I'm I've been really big into Necrons lately, and when you guys finally released that Necron episode. I got so excited, mm-hmm. and I listened, and everything. All of your initial reactions were essentially my reactions, um, and then you guys, you know, talked about everything. So it was cool. It was it was nice to. It's always nice to get different perspectives on a book, um, but in the finest hour, check that out. They handle these kind of topics in an hour. They break down these large topics into bite-sized hour episodes. Also, you can find Brandon on his Astro Militarum Facebook group. Is that the plug yep, for this episode? Just message me on Facebook if you're interested. Brandon Grant. They're going to talk about Astro Militarum. With that new Imperial Guard Battle Force coming out, maybe you want to try out Astro Militarum in 9th edition. Who knows? Also, a uh, quick takeaway, Brandon, where where do guards stand right now in ninth edition? If you could place them in a tier. Tier two. What's is tier two just like good? Like Necrons? Tier two is good, but not Marines. Mm. Is <laughs> <laughs> Okay. Well then so then Astrobos are in a good spot yeah. then. <laughs> right on. Okay, that's it. If you're listening and you're new to the podcast, at the end of every episode, we'd like to open the floor out to the patrons where they get to ask us questions that we answer live at the end of every episode. Starting right now, first off, we have patron patron Brett. Uh, Brett wants to know, uh, for my learning this weekend being the first game of the ninth, I made several mistakes I didn't realize I made at first. Deployment mistakes, no placing units in reserves, etc., etc. For reference, my first game deployment against Space Marines where I deployed almost everything out of range. Oh, um... Uh, never mind. There's no question here. Brett is just talking about. <laughs> Brett is just talking about his games. Um. Uh. So. Basically, um. I think what he's talking about is uh, they're in momentum momentum shifts when you make the wrong move, uh, and that can actually happen too. Um. Basically, I, I've seen this a lot as well. Uh, in ninth edition, and when you're learning a new edition, it can be very difficult to come back from a game when you've made like an idiotic error. So this is worse than the bad roll, right? Cause luck happens. Sometimes you just roll six ones in a row. It just, it just happens. But when you make a really bad mistake, like you give your opponent for free or you forget to warp time your Magnus out of, you know, out of range of the, the eradicators or, or whatever. And I think we've all kind of made those dumb bonehead mistakes. Um, Brandon and Sean, how do you get out of that like soul crushing momentum thing? Is it the same thing uh, as before, or is it like an extra level of of motivation loss? I think it's definitely like there's a breaking point for most people, and there are times when you do just need to like step away from the table, even during a timed game. Um, I've 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 had points where I've done this. I've seen other opponents do it. Uh, and I think it can actually be very valuable where, like, if if things go really bad, like, sometimes you may just need to, like, walk away for five or ten minutes. And if that can help you recenter yourself, that's five or ten minutes well spent on your clock. 
Um, so, so don't be afraid to like take a step back and kind of reassess things, but you know, try to avoid falling into that despair pit of like, oh, it's impossible for me to win now. There's nothing I can do. There's no point to anything. Uh, like, like Brandon said, like, look at your way forward, not, you know, focus on what's already happened to you. Yeah. I'd say, uh, if you're in a situation like that, my solution is, uh, Iron Maiden Dive With Your Boots On starts playing through my head. <laughs> uh, which is, the point of the song is basically, if you're gonna die, die with your boots on. Mm. Which is to say, yeah, you're host. This game's over. But, keep trying. Keep going. See, mm-hmm. your reactions are both get all the points very you can. Different, different than mine. What I do is, I get down on both knees, I look at my opponent, my eyes start to water, and I beg them for a take back. Hmm. It doesn't work, but I'm joking. I don't. I I, I don't make mistakes in 40k games at all. No, I I've, <laughs> look. I've definitely had games where I've asked my opponent to do a, a dice off, where it's like, can I four up to do that? But in return, if my opponent asks for one, I tend to give it to them. Um, mm-hmm. like that's a whole other topic but yeah personally i'm not against uh four upping those under most circumstances unless it's you and your opponent have talked ahead of time it's like no we're gonna play this as tight as possible if you make a mistake that's on you and that's totally fine too um just whatever your method is when you make a mistake be consistent if you would ask your opponent for that when they ask for it give it to them Here's the, here's the other thing too, because I, I this actually comes up a lot. People ask this question often, and this is like the take backsies kind of topic. Um, what I love doing is is obviously you know I, I believe in the I get one you get one philosophy. Although I really don't like to get take backs, but I'll give my opponent one, maybe two if they're new, but usually one really bad one. I'll be like, hey dude, just let's keep the momentum of the game going because I'm momentum focused. I want the game. I want both players playing at their cognitive best level in their right mindsets. Uh, that's what makes the game the most fun for me. So, but as long as both players have their momentum, it's great. And generally, if your opponent has to keep asking for takebacks, they're going to lose the game. It's just uh, you see it all the time, right? I, I don't think I've ever takebacked a game to a loss, right? Where I let my opponent give to have so many takebacks that they lost the game um, because generally when you play someone and they make that many mistakes it starts crushing their souls oh yeah and so you just kind of have to like like tell them like hey man you made the mistake but you know what next time you got to be better anyways so there's a limit i don't mind one or Mm -hmm. two um all right uh uh, patron spencer wants to know um he has actually underrated units and combos uh silent king and recur the traveler and 10 to 20 lich guard um so we talked so i said i was going to talk about lich guard combos um so first of all i'm one of those weird people who doesn't like sword and board lich guard at all they're just they're they're so expensive they're 28 points for a t5 two wound model that that's upside is uh five damage right because they have three attacks with two stratagems five damage um which is okay but in a marine meta that's one and a half aggressor or one and a half um basically big marines um if you roll well if you roll perfectly uh per lich guard and for two cp and you have to make the charge and the four up invuln is really like 
I don't know about you guys, but storm shields feel really nerfed. Like the four up invuln isn't nearly as good as the three up invuln. Four ups are way way worse than three ups. It's it it's like it is. Um, it's it a fifty percent decrease in their toughness. Oh, yeah. If you're ignoring all their armor. Oh yeah, and the plus one armor save is yeah. cool, but every at, all you need is AP two, and it's it's that's not that hard. Well, I mean, sitting sitting in cover with a storm shield, you've basically got an old storm shield against anything that's AP two or worse. That's true. And against AP one, you're actually better off than a an old storm shield was. So th- there are advantages. It's certainly less powerful, but I think GW recognized that like the three up invuln is not good. good for the and, game. And I agree with that. I generally agree with the three up invuln shift. Um, but what that what that kind of means for me and where I was going with that is I feel like Lichguard were um, are just a bit overpriced for the sword and board variant at twenty eight points a model. Um, so. So, are are you are you suggesting that you prefer the Warsythe version? Yes. Or are you suggesting a different unit entirely? Yeah. So I, I like I love the Lich Guard. I think they're one of the most versatile units in the whole book. Uh, they can protect very very good infantry lo- character nobles. Uh, they synergize with the Silent King, who is probably the best single model in that book. Um, mm. And then on top of that, they benefit from a variety of different playstyles and lists just by being core right so i love i love they essentially if novak ones essentially have two attack two extra attacks by default so they have five attacks each with war sites a unit of five of them that that's all you need a unit of five of them that's you know 25 attacks with usually some sort of plus one rerolls uh extra strength bonuses will usually kill most things like that'll that'll go into like a knight and hurt it really bad just five that's it by itself um so I like, I like tra- uh, Veil of Darknessing them with a uh, Lord with the reroll Charge Whirler trait. Um, if you want to start them off the board, so if you want to walk them on so you, that they don't get shot off, or if you're not worried about that, you can. My favorite um, is also the Technomancer with the Veil of Darkness or the Veil uh, Relic, and then you start them on the board and hide them. And then turn one or turn two, you can veil them somewhere and then charge them with an eight-inch rerollable charge, uh, with a five-up invuln. So they're still a little surprisingly durable. So I like that. But you can run them in a doom scythe. I've seen them in monolith lists, uh, you know. And I don't like Enric here with the plus so for six attacks. I don't feel like you need him. Yeah, I don't think he's worth it. The Silent King is obviously something of a different yeah. matter. So I love Lichguard. You can also just put a unit of ten of them. In the middle of the board and just shove them up the board because it 10 t5 you know two up save models with reanimation protocols is actually going to be very difficult to kill especially if you have like uh, a cryptic reviving models back with the cryptic ability um so you're still not going to want to just throw them directly at the enemy but they can definitely take a lot of damage yeah but I like I like five as like a heat seeking missile unit to kill very specific MSU Space Marine lists because the unit of five will go into like a unit of eradicators kill it and then maybe go toe to toe with some blade guard veterans and kill them uh, and <laughs> not without shields they won't well they'll they'll hopefully they're charging the blade guard veterans and then the blade guard veterans are failing their four bindles because at that point it's just a are your four bindles going to hold or not deal. Um, but yeah, but you know, in in that case, they have a four up invuln and you don't, 
and they have more attacks. Oh, you, you have to kill them. You, I agree with you there. One yeah. Blade Guard veteran might be able to kill the whole unit, um, but you, yeah, you absolutely need to kill them. But it, it, a lot of the times in, um, especially ninth edition, I'm seeing more people use the whole board uh, and it's really spread out. Um, Mm. or or everything devolves into a center fight which obviously it happens too um but with my style of lists i do like playing the whole board and a little five man powerhouse lich guard unit that can teleport and charge out of that teleport is just to my play style is just perfect but they are a bit too expensive for that role yeah i i think they're neat i like them in the the night scythe i think that has some interesting possibilities but I do kind of wonder if the Praetorians are not just better at most things than that. I actually really don't like the Triarch Praetorians. I really, really don't like them. They're, there's the okay. strength five. I mean, it's, you know, it's... Yeah, but you're getting you're getting shooting and melee. You're getting a 12-inch move. Uh, yeah, I mean, yeah, it's strength five. It's not as good for wrecking T8 stuff. But outside of that... Uh, it it hits pretty hard. It kills infantry real good. Mm. I I'm I'm also uh, I I like to go against the green. I'm, but anyways, yep, that's it. I love Lishgard. Um, not a fan of the Tri-Praetorians, but I'm stubborn. So, moving on. Uh, Patron Donald wants to know. Um, actually, nope, that is not a question. Patron Kelsey wants to know how do you go about predicting the meta for a tournament, and how far out do you try and do so? That's a good question. Um, you want to try and start doing that at least a month ahead of time, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd always like looking at stats. What are the win percentages for different armies? What are the army lists that are really popular? And tar- start planning around generalities and specifics. So generalities is, is there a trend in the winning army lists that I can focus on? Uh, oh, they're all fast-moving melee threats. Got it. And then the second half is, are there specific units and combos I need to be aware of? Uh, like oh dark matter crystal okay i need to be aware of uh this specific relic with this specific unit got it by the way that's going to be the next week's episode is a little you know Mm. fantastic yeah Yeah, to like i i certainly agree with that i think it is also depending on the tournament you're going to worth looking at kind of the known quantities is like who attends this tournament most of the time if this is like a a GT level or lower thing? Uh, Who shows up to this? What armies do I know they have? What armies have they been playing recently? Um, Those are all worth looking at because you can can look there and say like, well, I know this guy and he always brings orcs. What can orcs do and am I scared of that? Um, So like think about who the best players in your region are. And if you're going to, like, a really big tournament, you know, a major level thing, the sort of thing we're not having right now, but when we get back to that, um, look at, like, okay, what are the very best armies that exist? Because those are the armies I'm going to have to beat in order to win this. Yeah, that's that's actually... So if your dog barking, that's my neighbor's dog. Um, I apologize for that. I can't, you know... He's just having a good time barking at butterflies and stuff in the middle of the night. But anyways, um, uh, that's a great idea. I love the idea of looking at your who your local you know top players are. Um, that's very important. 
uh, we've like locally here we have like a really good knights player we have a really good orcs player and um, uh, we, we have a couple okay chaos players so that we always got to kind of keep an eye on them if they're going to events or not another thing that i like to do is i like to look at the best list archetype for every single faction because in warmer 40k even though space marines make up a ridiculous amount of the meta you're still don't play generally don't play a majority amount of space marine lists generally sometimes sean i know this has happened to you you play five mm-hmm. of a faction in a row. Sometimes it happens. Yep. I get it. But generally, even in the most stagnant and over-centralized metas, people bring their their genesters. The people have their, their horses that they back for every single faction. And then people bring the best versions of them. Right. So if you look at the Necron list, Necrons weren't played very well in very played very much in eighth edition. They had okay results. But you could definitely count on a single Necron list. It was it was the list every single time that that's what you saw. You didn't see anything else. Uh, same thing in Gene Circle. You didn't see anything else in Tyranids. You didn't see people bringing like twenty Carnifexes and Gene Stealers uh, or or Termagants or, or whatever. You you saw those very specific lists. So if if you are preparing for a, a major like a super major like the LVO do your research and just look at try and find the best list for every single faction it's actually relatively easy to do if you read the codexes because if you have some sort of like general knowledge it's like literally like what sean shaylin and ben did with the necron codex in the last episode of in the finest hour y'all just like picked out like the best stuff you're like oh like easily because like you told shaylin she doesn't play necrons but she does play 40k she does know 40k she knows rules she knows what's good um, so same thing. If you do that with every, and you apply that to every book, I think that's probably the best thing you can do generally. Um, uh, and then, uh, Kelsey had a second question. How do you break from your flow and take stock of the game state? Um, so like when you take a step back, uh, I like to walk around the board. Like I do like a lap where I look at everything. I go, Oh, look like that's, is that your cool captain Harley model? Like, like, you know, oh, there's a guy hiding in that corner. I didn't see him or I didn't know exactly where you placed him. So that's that's how I like to do it. Uh, I do like a. Yeah. So basically, when you're not actively rolling dice, you can take a step back and move around. Some people do different things, though. Some people look at their books. Some people write notes. Some people, um, you know, think about their plans. I, I usually at the, the start of the turn sort of like assess what my remaining units are. Like, what do I have alive? Where are each of them? What am I intending to do? And then kind of like look to the objectives in my opponent's units. Uh, and kind of like my army, their army, the board in that sort of uh, like trifecta of like those are the three things that are going to control what you do. You know what I really want to... This is a segue, a complete almost non sequitur i wonder how much positioning in the tournament affects your ability to win a game like even by a small amount so i'm thinking like you know how when you go to a tournament and there's rows when you get an end row you're like you're happy you're like yes i get all the room but if you get that like Hmm. middle of the row in like the smallest like in the corner of the room where they maybe ran out of space for all the tables so they had to put the tables like the rows like a feet a foot or two closer to each other than the rest of the tournament everyone knows what i'm talking about if you've been to a 40k tournament it, it, it's happened at least once 
uh, where there's one table where it's just shitty. Maybe it's outside or it's up against the corner or, or whatever. <laughs> um, I wonder if there's any like actual data that points to that affecting your ability to win a game or not. Like if we followed like Sean Maiden around <laughs> at the LVO and put him on in like the worst tables possible, would he like not make a top eight? I'm just, that's just interesting. We're not going to do that to you, Sean, if you're listening. I don't think you listen to this podcast, but be interesting. Don't listen to him. We're coming for you, Sean. <laughs> it's a conspiracy. You stole my name and I'll never forgive you. Um, all right. Finally, patron Shay wants to know, do any of the hosts have any recommendations on how best to set up terrain for a competitive experience? Um, GW's guidelines as as slight as they are i think are what you should take as the bare minimum um that 25 percent coverage is like if you have less than that you're not going to have a game you're just going to have a shooting gallery beyond that uh, i would say one of the most critical things is having that uh the dense or obscuring terrain towards the center of the table somewhere that stops people from just sitting on the back line and shooting across the table. So you're going to want several relatively large pieces of that that are going to significantly inhibit shooting, um, as well as other pieces kind of scattered around. If you have 12-inch gaps between terrain pieces you're going to have a very different game experience than I think what GW intends. Uh, you want things a little closer together, a little bit more dense. That And that, again, that 25% is like the minimum you can really get away with. Okay. Yeah, you definitely want some line of sight blocking terrain. And from a previous discussion, you want that terrain to not be um, incredibly thick between where the line of sight starts and ends. Um, mm-hmm. So what I mean by that is if you have an obscuring piece of terrain that's 12 by 12 inches, but the instant your model sets foot in that piece of terrain, they're visible because there are no walls without windows, then it's not very useful to actually hide in. It's hiding behind, but not in, which makes it very difficult to actually use to cross the table. So keep that in mind as well. L-shaped ruins are still um useful when they block line of sight when you're actually in them yeah uh yeah 100 percent. i actually don't i i don't know i've got there's so many tournament there's so many tournament setups right now terrain setups so um i like no i like terrain not in the center of the board um and not yeah. covering all the objectives you don't you don't need things to be dead center uh, and you don't need every objective to have like a babysitting piece of terrain next to it. Um, those are recommendations right. I've seen. I don't uh, think that is necessarily it. like you, absolute Sean and for coming on. Uh, as always, but you do it was a need enough stuff around that we already you can hope, cross we the already, table uh, without being them. seen. Also, in let us know in the comments if you like the episode. Uh, I did try something different with the ads. I know I had some complaints about ads and their volume levels in the past. So we're going to try and fix that. So there's going to be a little bit of lead off time in your ad. So if uh, you hear my voice randomly and I'm talking um, and it's a complete, you know, like, uh, you know, what? it already happened because we're at the end of the episode. So never mind. Just ignore me. Uh, let me know what you think about the new ad style. Uh, do you like it? Do you don't like it? Um, and then hopefully we'll continue to improve from there. Thank you so much for listening. You're all the best listeners in the world. And as always, have a good one.